following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for enjoying the kids. Thanks for being with your family. Everybody knows it's pretty basic, but just in case, Christmas is about God being born as a baby. In fact, in order to rescue unwilling human beings, and really to rescue them from their sin and save them from certain coming judgment. Galatians chapter 4 says it so well, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And it all started with an announcement to a very unique group of people found in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 2. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel in your New Testament, chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And follow along in the outline that we've given you, which is kind of a normal fare for us at FBC. We're just expositing God's Word and trying to help God's Word be you know, understood in the way that God meant it. Uh, the author's intended meaning, and we're going to look at that today by an unusual group of people who heard an amazing announcement. This birth of Jesus Christ happened under the most obscure circumstances imaginable. (laughs) It was incredible. Jesus was born in a place where the animals of those staying in a public shelter were kept. Mary laid Jesus in a manger, and you know what a manger is, right? It's an animal feeding trough. That's not normal, friends. That's obscure. Thankfully, Mary and Joseph had a stable relationship. Oh, it's going to get better, okay? And while you're thinking about Christmas gifts, by the way, I recommend getting and giving a broken drum, right? You just can't beat it. So there you go. Things were different in Bethlehem, though. No one in this little village of Bethlehem realized the significance of what was happening. No one was aware that the world's greatest birth was occurring. In fact, all that was about to change. The silence over this momentous occasion is now going to be broken. In other words, you got to think about it in terms of this. If this announcement was actually done in the way that a human being would do, or humanly planned like a public relations campaign, who would have known? Well, obviously Caesar would have known in Rome, and the Senate, and maybe the governor of Judea, or even the power mongers in Israel itself, the high priest and the Sanhedrin would have been kind of in on the game here, so to speak. But instead, God chose to reveal this birth to the members of a lowly, despised, forgotten group of people. This is actually the lowest of the low in society. The keepers of sheep, the shepherds, watching their flocks in the hills between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And to help you with the geography, you can see Jerusalem from Bethlehem, you can see Bethlehem from Jerusalem. They're just six miles apart. And here they are keeping sheep in this region, maybe even for the temple sacrifices, But if that announcement had occurred any other way, God determined that it would be given to shepherds. And you can learn a lot, and I can learn a lot, 
from this particular announcement. Why is that? Well, people today think that they're Christians because they prayed a prayer, believed in Christ, they served in ministry, uh, they had a moment, they had an experience with Jesus, they attend a good church. But those don't make you a Christian. Only God makes people Christians. It's supernatural, and the fact that God, when He does that, and makes you a child of God, you're dramatically transformed internally. You may look the same on the outside, but you're not the same. It's called regeneration or being born again. And that it changed, that, that adjustment, that incredible transformation is more than external, it's internal. And what you're going to see is it's more than, you know, having a Jesus bumper sticker or carrying a big Bible. Uh, God is holy, and He must judge sin. And so God sent Christ to be punished in our place. But when you are rescued in that manner where you believe that God basically rescued you through the death of His Son and the resurrection from the dead, and you understand what He did by taking the punishment that you deserved and you're transformed internally, you now have a heart that wants to follow Christ, that wants to obey Him, and that's what you see with the shepherds. You see a change. In fact, what happens with the shepherds is they show us that all God's true children will follow Christ. What does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and they what? Follow me. And so they're going to love Christ as their first love. They're going to demonstrate that they're his children by wanting to obey what he has to say. It's very obvious. And so this was God's plan from the very beginning. That he would provide salvation through his son. And that he would do this from eternity past he made this plan. This was not a random moment in God's plan and his design. His birth, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven were not accidents. In fact, they were carefully predetermined. And we know this because in the Old Testament, we find over 300 prophecies of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his return. Over 300 of them. You say, Chris, that was manipulated by people. Listen, friends. The Hebrew Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. This is historical fact. 200 years before the birth of Christ. All these predictions were made long before Christ was born. It was already put into motion. In fact, we know from multiple prophecies exactly what Christ did for us. One of them I want you to look at, it's there in your outline. It was 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah said this about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's about Christ. It says, surely, Isaiah 53, not 52 in your outline there, Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for what? Our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray and we all have turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. He took our place. He took our punishment. The wages of sin is what? Death. And Christ died on our behalf and then showed it was genuine by rising from the dead. And that event, this event that we're all studying today that occurs in Luke 2 was all pre-planned. All of it. Here in this gospel in Luke with this angelic announcement to the shepherds on Christ's birth this Christmas morning, Luke explains why Christ came. He explains it. Christ was not merely a Jewish sage. He was not merely a teacher of 
morality, and he certainly wasn't some sort of first century Gandhi, all right? The Bible tells us that Christ was and is the Savior of the world. Christ is the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost by saving his people from their sins. That's what the Bible declares. And Luke 2, that announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, you're going to find seven very quick points that come right out of the text about his rescue, of rescuing those of us and all of us who didn't want him in the first place. Now, why is it called good news? It's pretty simple because of this. Every religion on earth says in order for you to get right with God and go to heaven and and be basically someone who is now correctly related to the God who made you, you got to do something. You got to say certain prayers. You got to do certain things. You got to do certain acts. You got to be live a certain way. Only one religion on planet earth says there's nothing you can do. In fact, so much so that God did it for you. He did it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Christianity proclaims is that God did the work and now you embrace it. Christ is really the one, the best way to see this is the one who rescues people drowning in their sin. Listen, when you're drowning, you can't save yourself, right? Someone has to save you and that's what Christ did. So take a look at this if you would. Point number one in your outline, let's look at these points of rescue Number one in your outline, hear about God's rescue and don't be afraid. Hear about it and don't be afraid. What you have here, look at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2 and and read along with me silently as I get to halfway through verse 10. It says, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now the good news of the Savior's birth first came to this very unlikely group of people. Again, shepherds were at the near bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated, they were unskilled. They were increasingly viewed as dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory individuals. So much so, no joke, in the first century, a shepherd could not give testimony in a court of law. That's how untrusted they were. And because sheep required care seven days a week, 24-7, shepherds were unable to fully comply with the man-made Sabbath regulations that the Pharisees had come up with. And as a result, shepherds were viewed then by culture and society as being in continual violation of all the Jewish regular laws. In fact, they were viewed by everybody as, and considered by all as being ceremonially unclean. And that's not to say that every shepherd in Israel's history was a disgrace. Two of Israel's greatest leaders, right? Moses and David were shepherds. But these particular shepherds, between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, watching sheep in the region, about six miles from each other, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, they were, verse 8, take a look at it, staying out in the fields with their flocks. Now, sheep were kept outside during the day to graze, and then at night, they were brought into sheepfolds, sometimes fenced areas, sometimes, you know, geographically locked in areas so that they could be protected and guarded at night from thieves and predators who might want to harm the sheep, and that's what shepherds do. And typically, shepherds would watch at night, but they would also kind of go in and out of sleep and kind of have one of those ears that's always, you know, kind of waiting and watching. So it's dark, 
It's quiet. The sheep are all gathered together. And then this tranquil scene is then shattered. Now, I don't know about you, but I did this at least once. Uh, You ever woken up a friend with an air horn? Anybody? Anybody? Just kind of a fun thing you do when you're in college. This is what you do. So this is exactly what happens at this point. These guys are just, it's mellow, it's quiet, it's dark, and bam, what happens is they're watching their flock, as they always did. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord just suddenly, it says in the text, stood before them. Now it was midnight, and now it's literally midday. That's what's changed. It was dark, now it's noonday bright. Look at verse 9, and the glory of the Lord, what? Shone around them. Now, God's glory is almost always manifested by a gigantically bright, 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 bright spotlight. It's massively bright. God's glory is actually theologically defined as the summation of all of God's attributes. It's putting His character on display. And the only way that that's manifested is light. And what you have in the Old Testament, in Eden, in the wilderness, in the temple dedication, in the Mount of Transfiguration, and even in heaven later, they're all lit by the glory of God, by God's glory. And the shepherds, understandably, look at verse 9, were terribly frightened by this magnificent angel and then this horrendously bright glory of God. And so fear is the natural and normal response when anybody in the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, encounters the glory of God. But there's something additional about this light. It's not just a bright light. The glory of God has a propensity, and you can find this throughout the Scripture, so I'm not making this assertion on my own authority, but on the Bible. It has a way of looking through you. It has a way of exposing you. Like like an x-ray, it shows you who you really are. Now, if I were to right now somehow have my, my iPad up here and I had a special cable and a special program, an app, you know, that I've downloaded, and that app somehow, if I put the cable, the headset on Richard down here, then it basically, I could then configure this app so that everything that Richard has thought about in his mind all week long, this last week, would now be projected on these three screens. Do you think that Richard would want me to do that in front of all of you? Yes or no? No. And either would you. Because we know what goes on behind our actions and sometimes our selfishness and our pride. We understand that we don't want that exposed. Well, this is what's happening as the shepherds are facing the glory of God. It's seeing through them, and they're seeing themselves for who they are. They're seeing this sense of, whoa, I'm in the presence of holiness. I'm in the presence of God's glory, and I see myself as a sinful individual. You say, Chris, where do you get that from? Look at your outline there, Isaiah chapter 6 Verse 5, when the prophet actually saw God in some measure, what's he say? Woe is me, for I am what? Ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and I stand among a people of unclean lips. They're sinners, for my eyes have seen the King. Wow. That's what the glory of God does. In fact, take it a step further. The glory of God, as 
Christ manifested God's glory by doing an incredible miracle, Peter looks at him and says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a what? A sinful man. That's God's glory. And seeing the shepherds' obvious terror of seeing themselves before a holy, perfect, righteous God, verse 10, the angel commands them with the only command in these verses, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He commands them, fear God, but don't stay terrified because Christ can rescue you from what's been exposed by the glory of God, which is your sinfulness. And so instead of being justly judged by God and punished forever, you can now be forgiven by God and blessed forever. Salvation is at hand, which leads us to number two, admit who needs to be rescued. Admit who needs to be rescued. Look at the second half of verse 10. You're going to love this. This is fantastic. For behold, I bring you what? Good news. And what kind of news is it? It's of what? Oh, wait, wait. Say that with a smile on your face. One more time. It's good news of what? Great joy for which will be for all the people. Now, I want you to let this wash over you just for a moment here. We sometimes read these passages and we miss the main point. The biggest reaction, the biggest fruit, the biggest result from the angelic announcement, are you ready? Great joy. Great joy. We live in a day that is missing joy. There's so little joy in our world. Why? People are sad and depressed from guilt and disappointment of their past and their sin. And people are filled with fear of anxiety of the future. There is so little joy. And in the midst of that mentality, the angel announces there's good news for all the people that the Savior has come. Why? He's going to erase the sins of the past and he's going to secure your future with certain hope not english hope which maybe yes maybe no but biblical hope is certain hope this is going to happen there's joy and it will be for how many people all the people look what he says for all the people you saw it for all the people the greek word people there refers to israel and everybody on the planet even jew and gentile and you got to remember what god's going to say through old man simeon who said in the temple just a few verses later in luke chapter 2 verse 30 you know simeon i love him he's been waiting his entire life for the appearance of the messiah his entire life and god said you're not going to die until you see the messiah he recognizes this baby as god's messiah the savior of the world he immediately responds by these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, For my eyes have now seen God, your salvation, that little child, which ha you have prepared in the presence of how many people? All people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles for everybody in the world and the glory of your people Israel. It's for everybody. All means what? All. It also means you. It means you. If you're religious, you're sincere. You had an experience with Jesus at some point in your past. You're a criminal. Even if you call yourself a Christian, you need and I need to be rescued. Every single one of us does. In fact, admit it. 
even if you're a massively sinful right now, you can be rescued by the only Savior, the only one. He will do the work to rescue you because sinners, again, are like the drowning. They cannot save themselves. They need to be rescued. So number three in your outline, would you accept God's invitation to your only hope of rescue? Accept God's invitation. Look at verses 11 and 12. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a what? Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. So shepherds, go find your Messiah. Go find the only Savior. He's just reassured them that they don't need to be frightened anymore. He came bearing good news, and the angel gave them the details of the good news. That very day, history's most significant birth has taken place. In fact, it happened in the most unlikely of places, verse 11, it happened in the city of David, which is the tiny little hamlet of Bethlehem. That's where David was born. And you say, well, who was born? Well, verses 11 and 12 give you two major titles. You see them there? The first one is Savior. And why do we call it rescue? Because that's what Savior means. He rescues you. He's like an eternal lifeguard. We're now separated from God from our sin, and He's going to somehow make that right by taking the punishment that we deserve, taking our place, being our substitute, and then covering us with His perfection and His righteousness. Instead of being justly punished in hell because we've gone our own way, everybody in this room would admit it. You've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen, you've been angry, you've selfish or proud. At some point in your life, we deserve eternal punishment. We've defied God, but instead, Christ takes the punishment of hell for your sin on the cross in your place. He is the Savior. He's the rescuer. He's the eternal lifeguard when you're drowning in sin. The angel also calls Christ the what? The Lord. Now, we don't feel the impact of that word in our language now, but understand, they very clearly understood it, that Jesus is the ruler of the universe, the controller of all your circumstances, and the ruler of your life now and forever. Lord means we're to submit to Him, we're to follow Him, we're to worship Him, and because Lord means that Jesus is God. Are you getting it? Write it down. He's God. Jesus was and is, and I say this not irreverently, God in a bod, okay? That's who he was. God incarnate, God in the flesh. That's what incarnation means, right? You've heard me tell you this before. Incarnate, incarne, chili con carne, what? Chili with meat, correct? Incarnate, God with meat on. God in the flesh. God is spirit, but the second person of the Trinity took on humanity and became God in the flesh. And listen, to call him Lord is to say that Jesus is God. And here's the warning. No one who does not affirm Christ's full deity and equality with God the Father can be saved. You must affirm that. Jesus even warned the Jews in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. And so what you have is Jesus is God who came to live among humanity to die in our place and provide the only means of rescue from God's wrath. This is amazing. Then the angel gives the shepherds, verse 12. Would you look at it? Verse 12, a sign. It says, here's a sign. They're going to be able to identify this remarkable child. They said, verse 12, take a look at it. You will find a baby, what? 
wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Now, wait a minute. I read that and I go, wait, every single Jewish mother wrapped their baby in clothes. Okay, they didn't leave them there naked. They wrapped them up. That's what they did. That's what they, uh, that's a normal uh, process. But you're not going to find a lot of Jewish babies anytime in history laying in a manger, in a feeding trough. So that narrows the shepherd's search for this remarkable God slash baby. And so, number four in your outline, give God glory for his heart to rescue. This is something that God is celebrating. This is not God is resenting this. This is a celebration. In verses 13 and 14, look what it says. Look what happens. Suddenly, as the angel is talking, there appeared with the angel a multitude of hosts, heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, while the angel is speaking to the shepherds, something even more amazing happens. This is incredible. Suddenly, shockingly, there appears all through the sky, all, you know, anywhere you look in the sky, is this amazing, all at once, unprecedented in Scripture so this has never happened before and never happened since then, the appearance of a massively large group of angels. They fill the sky. In fact, do you see it? Can you see it in your own, your own mind here? This is jaw-dropping awesome. I, I look at it like somehow, and you're looking at the night sky, there's this gigantic disco ball, and it's spinning with light everywhere, and it's angels flying everywhere. It's, you're looking at it going, Wow! It's going to be a momentous moment in history. All heaven breaks out in rejoicing at the birth of God's the Son as a baby. You say, why? Why? Well, angels knew Christ before he was born as a child as the second person of the Trinity. Before his incarnation, where they saw his inexpressible glory. And by the way, let's make it clear. Who's the one who created the angels? Christ. So understand, they knew that mankind's fall into sin, which began with Adam and Eve, had transformed the human race into sinful rebels against God. But these angels also knew that God provided the only way of salvation for men and for women. And their deep concern of the salvation for sinners was also driving them. And it causes there to be, in Luke 15, joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're very engaged in what's happening here. And this angelic chorus of praise reflects the highest of all truths, which is what? The supreme reason for all that exists is the glory of God. The reflection of His character. The ultimate purpose of the good news of salvation is to rescue sinners so they can join the angels in praising God in His glory. In glorifying God, look at verse 14. The angels declare glory to God in the highest. They want God to be reflected massively throughout the earth. And even on earth they proclaim peace among men. Now this is kind of strange because this peace is not what beauty queens ask for, right? What do you want? Peace on earth. No. That's not what's happening here. The peace that angels want is peace between God and mankind, men and women. Because there's enmity, there's war. We've gone our own way, we've done our own thing. We've chosen to go a different direction 
that God created us for, and the peace with God, which only comes through salvation in Christ, it's only by faith in Him, in the Prince of Peace, that actually God and sinners can be reconciled, that, that war can be over, so now we're no longer God's enemies, but we're actually not only His friends, but His family. His family. So, number five, the desire to embrace God's rescue. Desire to embrace God's rescue. In verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see the things which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Clearly, the shepherds wanted to get to Bethlehem. Somehow, they've got to find somebody to watch their sheep or they've got to figure out how to leave them there that they're safe. So some stayed or they found others to watch the flock and then they left for Bethlehem immediately. Their reaction is a fantastic example of what it means to come to Christ. Step one is they heard the revelation from God. They heard God's word about who Christ is, what Christ came to do, that he's the savior that's come. Then secondly, step two, they believed it. How about you? You're hearing God's word about who Christ is. Will you, step two, believe it? These shepherds might have been devout worshipers of the Lord. They might have even been eternally prepared and looking for God's promised redemption. Their hearts might have been prepared. So when they heard about the Savior's birth, they believed it. Is that you? If so, then number six, pursue the process of being rescued. Pursue the process of being rescued. Verses 16 and 17. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. The shepherds didn't do a search and rescue. They did a search for rescue. And they were in a hurry, no doubt excited with the anticipation of salvation flooding their hearts. They've had their sin exposed by the glory of God. They're running to find this way of salvation. And Luke doesn't describe how these shepherds made the one to two to three to four miles to get to Bethlehem and find Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. There would have been not a whole lot of babies born in Bethlehem. It wasn't a large hamlet. It's a small village on any given night. And certainly the news of any birth would have spread by word of mouth especially since Mary gave birth in a semi-public place. But understand, the shepherds finally saw Christ. Look at verse 16. Look at where they saw him. He as he lay in a what? Manger. The angel's prophecy was confirmed and their faith was verified. So these shepherds seeking out Mary, Joseph, and Jesus show you, again, the next step in the process. Those who truly believe in the word of God about Christ will come to him. Maybe you too will accept Christ's gracious invitation. It's found throughout the New Testament. One of the clearest ones is Matthew 28. Actually, not Matthew 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, And it says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Stop wondering whether you're called or you're chosen or you're elected. Just come to me. It doesn't matter if your friends or family understand or what they'll think. Come to me. So what if you've committed horrible sins? Come to me. Regardless of your fear or your feelings, come to me. Turn from your educational pride. Turn from your self-centered priorities or some horrible disappointments. Jesus, what does he say? 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Look at it. And I will give you what? Eternal rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 17, the angels told Mary and Joseph what happened. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that conversation? I wish I could have been there to hear that. The young couple had been overwhelmed by the shepherds sharing these amazing events and they had just witnessed. But the most important of all is point number seven. Choose the saving reaction to being rescued. Choose the saving reaction to being rescued. As I read verses 18 to 20, see if you can discover the different reactions that people had to the birth of Christ. There are three of them here. They're pretty clear. And then, if you would, as you discover these reactions, ask which one is most like you? Which one represents you? Look at verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Verse 20. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. Which reaction is most like you? Are you wondering, treasuring, or glorifying God? Look, look at all three. First wonder, verse 18. Because they had heard the angels, they had seen the angels, they had talked to Joseph and Mary, the shepherds went everywhere proclaiming God's word at what God had accomplished. The good news that a Savior, Israel's long-awaited Messiah, had been born. They're telling everybody, God has come in the flesh to take our place. God, who can then satisfy God, and then He's also the God-man, so He can take our place and be our substitute. Christ would take the punishment for your sin, the final sacrifice, and you could be made righteous with His perfection that's granted to you so you can stand in God's presence. The, 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 the shepherds were actually the first New Testament evangelists. And they're sharing with everybody, but the reaction of those who heard the shepherds was verse 18. All who heard of it, what did they do? They wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. They wondered. Now Luke uses this word wonder a lot in his gospel. And when you understand it, it's basically translated either amazed or marveling, which means both of those together. They wondered, but sadly... And even in the gospel, you'll see this, that that kind of amazement, that kind of marveling leads to a curiosity, but not a commitment. The people who heard the shepherds, they wondered, but after their initial amazement wore off, it seems as if they just went on with their lives as if nothing ever happened. In fact, the same thing happens every Christmas in our region, people react to Christ, some with wonder, some with amazement, and then they return to their lives as if God were not born, if God were not born to rescue them from certain eternal judgment from their sins. Friends, any kind of faith without works is dead. Christ without commitment is not salvation. Salvation. 
Now, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about progress, that there's going to be a committed progress in your life. Once you have Christ, you actually, if you're genuine, never live the same. You will live for Christ in all you do in life, and, or you're not His. In fact, there's no such thing as a non-serving, non-giving, non-church attending, non-praying, non-obeying Christian. That professor is not a true believer. He or she is a make-believer. Are you wondering about but not following Christ? Because Jesus said it pretty clearly, did He? My sheep hear my voice and they, they follow me. Oh, you'll trip along the way. You're not going to be perfect far from it. But you're going to want to follow him if you're born again. This Christmas, don't merely be amazed. Don't merely marvel. Don't be a wonderer. Maybe be the next one, treasured. Treasures. Secondly, in contrast to the superficial reaction of many who heard the news, verse 19, it says that Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary reflected deeply on the significance of Christ's birth as God's son and on what that birth meant for her and Joseph as Christ's earthly parents. In addition to the normal thoughts that would occur to any first-time mother, Mary had many profound truths that she was thinking through and treasuring and pondering. Listen, we know this, right? Mary knew that this was a supernatural birth. She knew that from experience, okay? She considered God's redemptive purpose and how just as he had promised through the angel who announced to her that she would give birth, that God had sent a Savior to redeem his people and that redemption would come, though, at a fearful cost. Again, in just a week, she's going to be meeting Simeon in the temple introducing Jesus to Simeon, who's waited his entire life to see the Savior, the Messiah. And Simeon's going to say this. Listen, verse 34 through 35. Behold, Simeon says about this little baby, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. He's going to be a divider. And for a sign to be opposed, people are going to be in opposition. And Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. He's going to reveal the hearts of people. Years later in John 19, Mary would actually watch her son die on a cross bearing God's wrath against sin. Mary, a sinner herself, she admits it in her own prayer as needing a Savior But as a mother here, she pondered the purpose of this child. And I believe she knew that Jesus would have to die. I think she knew that he would die as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Are you treasuring Christ in that manner? Is Christ your only hope so you can be made right before God now and forever in heaven? Are you treasuring Jesus Christ? This is a funny season, isn't it? Isn't Christmas kind of a funny season to you? It is to me. Think about it. We sit around dead trees eating candy and snacks out of socks. (laughs) That's kind of weird. I'm thinking, you know, if your cat or dog eats the Christmas decorations, they're probably going to get tinselitis, right? (laughs) Society 
is so bad that half the windows on your advent calendar are boarded up. I mean, it's bad. But with all you're doing this season, with all you're thinking about with family and friends, I hope you're thinking about what's most important, that you're thinking about eternity. Your future after you die, when you stand before God, we will be judged. And the Bible makes it very clear that judgment from God over your entire life will fall either on Jesus Christ or it will fall on you. That's it. Are you thinking about a Savior? I hope and pray you'll be one who is glorifying and praising God. That's the third reaction. Glorifying and praising God. Life is demanding. And eventually the shepherds had to return to their obligations. But look at verse 20. What's it say about them? It says, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as they had been told them. All their hopes and longings that a Redeemer would come had been realized and their lives were marked now with a newfound attitude of praise and worship. That's the same that characterizes every true Christian who knows Jesus, who loves Jesus Christ, and is born again. This is what Christians do, Hebrews 13, 15. They continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What that means is this. Christians don't sing praise to God because they have to, but because they want to. Christians don't obey God because of a bunch of rules in Christianity. They obey God because they want to. Understand, far too many believers claim to be Christians and they are self-deceived. Don't be one of them. We live in kind of a little conservative bubble here in our region. Don't be one who's deceived yourself. The Bible states a fact. It's fact. Christ will say to many, and the text says many, Depart from me, I never what? Knew you. They claim to be Christians. They've tasted of his fellowship. But are they truly, truly expressing a heart of wonder about Christ? But they lack being born again, transformed internally, which always is seen by a desire from their heart to want to obey him when you fail to. A willingness to do anything for Christ, even though we often fall short, and to pursue actually worshiping Him by offering ourselves as living sacrifices to Him and offering our entire life to Him, even though we don't live up to that. No Christian lives perfectly, but they all live progressively. But that is what Christ does. He changes us internally. Understand, when you're drowning, you can't rescue yourself. When you're blinded by sin, you can't give yourself sight. And when you're dead to God, you cannot make yourself alive. There are some of you here now who need to be rescued. And again, there are many who claim to be Christians, and yet Jesus will say, I never knew you. You need to cry out in prayer from a sincere heart, asking him to save you, forgive you, and make you into a brand new person. And believe that he died on your behalf and rose from the dead. In fact, there are obvious signs in the New Testament if you're a pretend Christian, a fake follower, or a make-believer. If Christ is really not in you, you see it when you acknowledge your Christianity, but you don't live your faith out every day. Uh, your faith is personal, but it's not public. Your lifestyle's good, but it's not for His glory. Your obedience is convenient, but not a commitment. Your involvement is sporadic, but not faithful. 
You say you have faith, but your faith doesn't work. You say Christ is your Lord, but you don't obey Him. You say you're faithful, you don't follow Him. Your Christianity is on your terms and not on His terms described in the Bible. If that's you, then right now, without delay, would you repent of your fake Christianity? Cry out to Christ to cause you to be born again, to be forgiving your sins, to know what it means to have true joy, true peace, true love internally infused in you by God himself and transform you from within. Talk to anybody who invited you. Talk to family and friends who know Christ. Talk to anyone a part of our church. Talk to the people at the door. Talk to the people out at the visitor table. Talk to somebody, but don't delay. All of you, all of us need to be rescued. And the only one who can rescue you is Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. Heavenly Father, we pray you would take your word and you would change our lives and make us more like your son. But more importantly, Father, if there are any here who do not know you, who do not have a genuine relationship with you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you then cause them to be born again so that they might know true love, true joy, true peace. And it would be a transformation that can only be explained that you have entered their life and you have made them new and forgiven all their sins, past, present, and future. Let that be true of some today. We'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. You deserve it all. And cause the rest of us to join the angels in praise of what you've done for us. We love you. We thank you. And we exalt you as our King, as our Lord, as our God. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.